when it comes to your finances, you think you've done it all. You've saved, you've researched, and you've invested all that you can. Now it's time to take those investments to the next level by using the brand behind every great investor, Yahoo Finance. As America's number one finance destination, Yahoo Finance has everything you need, whether you're a seasoned trader or just dipping your toes into the market. Join the millions of investors who trust Yahoo Finance to guide them on their financial journey. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit yahoofinance.com, the number one financial destination, yahoofinance.com. Welcome to FT Politics, a weekly discussion on what's happening in Westminster from the Financial Times. I'm Sebastian Payne. In this week's episode, we'll be discussing everything that's happened with coronavirus this week and the disruption it's created across the UK and British politics. We'll be looking at the apparent U-turn by Downing Street in its strategy, Rishi Sunak's huge economic stimulus package to keep the economy going, the social distancing measures introduced by the Prime Minister, how the National Health Service is coping, why schools are no longer sitting, and what's going to happen in the near future. I'm delighted to be joined by our political editor, George Parker, and down the line, columnist Robert Shrimsley and our global health editor, Sarah Neville. Thank you all for joining. And if you find yourself liking this episode of FT Politics, then don't forget to subscribe through all the usual channels to receive it every week. Obviously, as we said last week, coronavirus is disrupting all of our lives and the FT is no exception. We're doing our best to keep going. We'll keep these podcasts going, although the quality might not be what we're normally used to. So hopefully you can bear with us. This week, the coronavirus crisis heightened significantly. Prime Minister Boris Johnson announced waves and waves of new measures to essentially bring the country to a halt, introduce significant social distancing measures, all the while trying to keep the economy going. George Parker, let's begin with what happened very early in the week. Last Saturday, SAGE, which is the body that gives the government scientific recommendations, basically said that the disease was spreading at a much quicker rate and the UK government would have to change its strategy quite rapidly. There's been a lot of debate about whether this was a U-turn or whether it was part of the plan all along. But on Monday, the Prime Minister came out and announced these social distancing measures and said that everybody with any signs of coronavirus had to stay at home for seven days and anyone in their household too had to stay at home for a similar period of time. So what went on there? Well, the government, of course, denies there's been any change of strategy and they can point to their original battle plan, which set out a range of escalating measures they could introduce as the crisis developed. But I don't think anybody in Downing Street or indeed anybody who's attended any of the briefings as I have had with the chief medical officer and the chief scientific advisor expected things to escalate this quickly. And certainly, as you say, the science appeared to change. There was another very important report by Imperial College which suggested if the government continued down its existing path, you could end up with 250,000 deaths and the NHS being overwhelmed because more people were going to end up in intensive care beds than they previously thought. So the science, I think it's fair to say, was changing very rapidly. But I think also you can't totally disentangle that from the politics. And I never really understood how the government could pursue essentially a very different policy to the one being adopted by all of our European neighbours who were intent on suppressing the disease and stopping it in its tracks. The UK policy seems to be much more about managing the inevitable spread of the epidemic through the population. And I couldn't see how they could handle the politics and indeed, more importantly, bring the British people with them if the death rate in the UK started to rapidly exceed that in other European countries that were taking a different strategy. So science and the politics, I think, came together. And in the end, as you say, 
there was a very different tone set by Boris Johnson at the start of this week. Because Sarah Neville, when we look at the original approach from number 10, there was a lot of talk about this idea of herd immunity. And last week we heard Sir Patrick Vallance, who's the chief scientific officer, saying this was the general aim to try and get as much of the population immune as possible. But as George said, that would result in a significant amount of deaths in the short term. But then by Sunday, Matt Hancock, the health secretary, was on TV saying herd immunity is not our strategy. So that really does point towards a U-turn there. How much has this been about strategy versus science versus politics, do you think? Well, I think what happened there was something of a collision between the worlds of science and politics, because I think what Patrick Vallance was really talking about was looking sort of nine months out as to what course the outbreak in the UK would be seen to have taken. And I know there are many people in the world of of medicine and science who think that actually he was being admirably forward-looking, more so than most countries have been. But unfortunately, it came across in such a way that the politician, Matt Hancock, had to step in and be absolutely clear, our goal as a government is not to have more people get this disease. So I think it was something of a sort of communication snafu, perhaps less than an actual change of strategy. But what's really come through so strongly to me this week is that all of this has been about protecting the NHS. You know, Simon Stevens was at the Health Select Committee earlier this week. It was actually the first time we'd heard from the head of the NHS since this outbreak started. And he said very clearly that there wasn't a health system in the world that could cope if this virus was really allowed to let rip. So all the strategy is about keeping disease rates sufficiently low and sufficiently well spaced out that the NHS, which, let's face it, is creaking at the best of times, doesn't completely fall over during this epidemic. Indeed. Robert Shimsley, on the politics of this of this change in strategy, approach, whatever you want to call it, you know, I spoke to a whole bunch of Conservative MPs about how they feel about the U-turn. And they said that Jeremy Hunt had gone out there. He's obviously the UK's longest serving health secretary and has been quite prominent on this. And he came out last week and said the government's strategy is not right. We need to go harder and faster. And a whole load of Tories I spoke to said they broadly agreed with that, but they didn't want to say it publicly because... Because A, they're not health experts and B, they didn't want to be seen to be undermining the government. But generally, it feels like this change has been welcomed, but it is going to raise the questions. Did the government lose valuable time when it could have stopped the spread of this illness? I think if one takes a step back from all of this, Seb, the point is, this is a time where whatever reservations or doubts or even hatred one had of Boris Johnson once upon a time, you actually need his government to succeed and the country will want him to succeed because it's all our necks. And so I think there's a degree of goodwill from people that says, look, this is obviously an extraordinary crisis. They're going to find their way a little bit. And I think the recrimination part of this has all just got to wait. As George said, the science was moving fast and the science changed. But the area where I think the government has not quite nailed this yet in terms of its communications is understanding that reassurance comes in two forms. You can tell everybody everything's going to be great, Or you can actually say, look, we're aware of how bad this is going to be and we've got a grip on it. And I think Boris Johnson has veered in the earlier days of this crisis towards the former when actually what people want to see is a seriousness and a sense of grip. And I think if on Monday he had levelled people a lot more and said, look, we were trying this scientific approach. This was the thing that seemed the right way to go. It's now clear the medical evidence is changing. The science is changing. 
the information we've seen from Italy tells us that this approach won't work and it will swamp the health service. Therefore, we are changing tack to a different approach. I think the more you level with people about that kind of thing, the more confidence they'll actually have. And they'll say, OK, they tried this. It wasn't right. He's moved. That would have been a smarter way to go at this. That's one area where Boris Johnson is still not getting this right, because I think he is still too instinctively drawn towards the sort of we will fight them on the beaches rhetoric when actually levelling with people is just as important. No, we've heard a lot about we're in a war with this disease and we're going to beat it. And again, it's very Churchillian language, as you would expect from a biographer of Winston Churchill. Following that, George, we then had something which was very, very profound in British politics, which was this huge economic stimulus package announced on Tuesday by Rishi Sunak, the new chancellor. And it's incredible to think that two weeks ago we had the budget, which included a decent package to try and help the economy get through coronavirus. It had £12 billion of extra funding to give a total £30 billion package. Six days later, that was blown out of the water by £350 billion package, which includes a lot of government-guaranteed loans, but also another £20 billion of economic stimulus. Just take us through what was announced and what you made of it. Well, I think it was only a week ago that I was sitting in the studio with Chris Giles, our economics editor, and we were opining wisely how £12 billion was probably erring on the side of generosity, but it was better to be too generous in fighting coronavirus than not enough. And then, as you say, the numbers have suddenly grown exponentially. I think what actually happened here on the fiscal side is partly explained by the different approach the government's taking because under the original plan, you could see the crisis building up over the early summer with a big peak of maybe four or five weeks at the end of May, beginning of June. Instead of which, we now have a different strategy where we're trying to control the virus, which means that the moment you remove the restrictions on people, there's a danger the virus comes back and you have to reimpose the restrictions. Therefore, the crisis, instead of being spread over mainly a few weeks in the summer, it's essentially going to be spread over the whole year. So suddenly you need a whole lot more money to actually fight it. And as you say, the package got the headlines, I'm sure the Treasury hoped for, which was £350 billion. Of course, £330 billion of that is Although the government's on the hook for these loans, these are loan guarantees. I think that number was chosen, not to sound too cynical, but to be slightly more than the French were offering in terms of their own... Yeah, 300 billion. ...their own loan guarantees, because, of course, no one really knows exactly how many of these loans are going to be called on by the private sector. Then there's the £20 billion, which will be direct grants and business rate holidays and all the rest of it, direct support for businesses. But, of course, that's not the end of it. Rishi Sunak said that this is just the start. He'll do whatever he takes, channelling... Mario Draghi. But of course, the other thing which we haven't seen yet, and we might see very soon, is the separate measures that he'll have to take to support people in work. So it's a big priority for the government to ensure that businesses remain viable and the staff, as far as possible, are kept in their jobs rather than being laid off because they want the economy to be able to pick up very quickly at the end of this. So we're expecting another tranche of money to help people in work. So at the end of this, this is going to be a massive, massive fiscal intervention by the government. And it really follows what we've seen from a lot of other countries as well, as you mentioned France there as well. We've also seen talk of big economic stimulus from America and other countries. One thing I thought was striking, George, was how Rishi Sunak and the new governor of the Bank of England, Andrew Bailey, what a week for him to be starting his job have worked very closely on this because even though the bank remains independent it's clear there's coordination between the treasury and the city to make sure that we can get through this and as you said to do whatever it takes 
But critics have said the problem with this package is there's not a huge amount of direct money going to businesses and the process of getting that, the lag between announcing this loan guarantee and business getting that money could have some very difficult consequences. We've seen so many stories this week of people being laid off and people losing their jobs. So it feels like that's the next piece. Then you also mentioned as well people in employment, like what sort of things are being talked about to help them? Well, of course, there have been questions about whether the UK should follow the Trump administration's idea of helicopter money and sending everyone a cheque for $1,000 in the post. And it was quite interesting watching Rishi Sunak giving evidence to the Treasury Select Committee. He was asked about this, whether you need just a general sort of fiscal money drop. And he said, well, look, initially what we're trying to do is target this and using the tax system may be the quickest way to deliver assistance at scale. So we have this idea of, for example, helping people by reversing the national insurance system so employers get money paid back through that way rather than them paying the government. But he sort of gave the game away a bit, I thought, but when he said that in the end, this is going to be so big, we're going to be talking about macroeconomic interventions. I think the one thing the Treasury is anxious about is going for a general fiscal stimulus now at a time when they don't want people to be going down to shops and restaurants and bars. They want people to be staying at home. And whether the timing of the fiscal stimulus comes when you're in the out phase of this crisis, when you need to give the economy a real big jolt to make sure that the recovery is quick. And Robert Shrimsley, one of the things that Rishi Zunak was criticised for initially was there was a three-month break for mortgage payments by those affected by coronavirus, but nothing initially for renters. And we saw the Labour Party jumped on this. John McDonnell, who responded to this statement in the House of Commons, was saying this was a big gap. The government has moved and has said that they're going to have a three-month moratorium on evictions and that no new evictions can start during this process here. Because that was another area where they feel that they sort of weren't quite on the front foot. To be fair to Rishi Sunak, even when he announced the first package, he said there's more to come and it's going to be more focused on the individuals. The easiest stuff to do was targeted at companies. So I don't think there's ever been any doubt they were going to do it. It'd be better, obviously, they could have done it all in one go. But if we get a comprehensive package of measures by the end of the week, then I think that's probably a step in the right direction. But it's absolutely clear that there are three central concurrent fears for everybody, every audience. And the first is their health. The second is their livelihood. And the third is their food supply. And on each of these areas, the government needs to be offering direct reassurance that they don't have to worry about this now. And so I think persuading people that they're not going to lose their jobs and persuading businesses to hold off in sacking people is absolutely crucial to the individual part of this package. And I think an awful lot is going to hang on how much he delivers on this. Another thing that we are potentially facing as well, Robert, is the nationalisation of some key industries. You know, British Airways is one such example that is facing real challenges with obviously air travel all but coming to an end. But there's also questions about the railways because the majority of British railways are not in public ownership. And again, travel on those is likely to collapse. So it's in this very odd situation where we could end up with a very nationalised British economy throughout this crisis. Yes, absolutely. I mean, the Corbyn agenda is going to look very weak by comparison to where we're going to end up. I think that whether we're heading into a full nationalisation or a very temporary one, or whether it's something somewhere in between those remains to be seen. I think on the railways, there's an agenda where most people in the country would be quite happy with that anyway. So if we end up there, there's not going to be a lot of flailing around about that. With the aviation and other sectors, my hunch is more that it's a temporary thing to get us over the crisis. Because the assumption, and you've seen some of the growth forecasts, is of a V-shaped recovery when we do get to the other side of this, and that many things could bounce back quite quickly as long as millions are not laid off. And so it's about freezing the economy for when we can revive it, I think, rather than necessarily permanently re-engineering it. Now, obviously, 
the impact of the scale of this intervention is going to be felt in multiple ways that we're only just beginning to get our heads around now. Absolutely, George. How the British economy and British politics looks on the other side of this, things are not going to go back to as they were before. And this is one of the questions that Robert mentioned about nationalisations. But one thing people have been discussing in Westminster is the prospect of bringing in a universal basic income, UBI, which was an idea the Labour Party flirted with under Jeremy Corbyn and said they would do trials and see how it went. Do you think there's any chance the Treasury might go down that route of offering everybody a basic income throughout this crisis? Well, I think that's one of the things that Rishi Sunak hasn't ruled out yet and we should get more details of exactly how they're going to approach this in the next few days. I think the general approach of this all the way through though has been to be as targeted as possible and I know this is something the Labour Party has been advocating but I'm not sure whether it might be seen in the end as just too much of a scattergun approach to actually bring the benefits they're hoping to achieve. Now, Sarah, if I could just bring you in to talk about where the NHS is in terms of its funding and equipment here. There's been a lot of focus this week on ventilators, which the UK seems to have a big lack of. No one's sure why the government didn't get on this much sooner, given that we knew this crisis was coming and they've looped in all sorts of phone calls from British industry to get people from Vauxhall to Jaguar Land Rover to JCB to try and make these things. What's going on with that? And also, are there enough staff to operate them if you do get all these extra ventilators, the kind of levels that have been talked about, 30,000 extra pieces of kit? Well, I think the NHS and the Department of Health were perhaps a little slow to appreciate that they were in a global race for this equipment that every other developed country was after the same pieces of kit. And clearly, a number of our European neighbours have come out with considerably more ventilators, personal protective equipment and other vital stuff than we have. So I think we were slow to recognise how important this was. And as a result, we've been hearing some really wrenching stories this week of frontline medical staff being forced to treat coronavirus patients without the necessary protection. And it's particularly alarming because quite young medics have been dying around the world. There seems to be a real link between the amount of the illness you're exposed to and your likelihood to actually pick up a fatal case of it yourself. And in terms of the staff to operate the equipment, which, as you rightly say, we are now in a hurry trying to sort of retool British manufacturing to deliver homegrown ventilators, personal protective equipment. The NHS says that it is upskilling staff as fast as it can, but whether that's going to be fast enough, clearly the coming weeks are going to tell. And I don't think sitting here that any of us could be absolutely confident that the NHS is going to be able to cope with this. Because one of the things the chief scientific officer and chief medical officer have said is the aim is to try and keep the number of cases below the ICU, the NHS capacity, to make sure that the health service doesn't entirely collapse. Based on what we've seen this week, Sarah, and where we're at in terms of the social distancing measures, is it still right to say that we are going to keep it below that level? Or is there going to be a level, based on what we currently know, where the health service does get overwhelmed? Well, I think one thing to say is that a couple of things that have happened have perhaps left the NHS less well able to cope than many other health systems. One is that we have very aggressively pursued an approach, actually over the last 30 years, of reducing the number of hospital beds and moving care more into the community, 
So that's obviously left us with fewer critical care beds than many comparable countries. And the other is simply UK austerity and the huge impact that that has had on the NHS. So we don't start in massively good shape to cope with a black swan event like this. Now, George, let's look at where we're at. We're recording this on Thursday afternoon. Events are moving very quickly at the moment. But the first thing we've seen is that schools are now closing on Friday. This was, again, inevitable. It was on the curve when cases start to pick up. And as Mr Johnson has said, we're at the point where it's exponentially increasing at a very quick rate here. But the announcement came on Wednesday afternoon with a lot of uncertainty about what it's going to mean for exams. The government hasn't been too clear on that, but also those key workers, people in the health service and the emergency service who are trying to keep basic societal functions going, their kids are still going to be in school because otherwise they couldn't do their jobs there. And we're still waiting for a bit of clarity on all that. Yeah, it's thrown up a whole load of questions about how this policy will be enacted. And it just goes back to the point we were making earlier, which is a lot of these things are coming much quicker towards the government than they'd previously expected. And you you went to the briefings, you'd assume this was something that was going to come maybe a few weeks down the track rather than a few days. And as a result, as you say, lots of details have yet to be hammered out, including, of course, who are the key workers whose children will be looked after, including during the Easter holidays, I should say, to make sure that the emergency services function. We don't have a definition of that yet. And also, we don't have an explanation yet of what Gavin Williams and the Education Secretary meant when he said that children would be given grades for their exams in August even if they haven't actually sat their GCSEs or A-levels, which they're not going to do. You know, we still don't know how that will be done, whether it will be done on the basis of predicted grades or how they did in their mocks. So a lot of unanswered questions. Obviously, it's heartbreaking for kids and indeed their parents who've been building up to this big moment the last couple of years. And Robert, the decision, as George said, to close schools feels like it was brought forward quite quickly. And it feels like that's going to happen with other stuff too. So one thing that's been dominating the headlines the past 24 hours is what's going to happen to London, because Boris Johnson has said London is ahead of the rest of the country on that curve. It's developing cases much quicker than other parts, you assume, because it's a capital city and there's more people and people are much close together and the social distancing measures are tougher to implement there. What sort of things do you think we're going to see with London in the coming days? I think it's a really interesting point. You only have to walk around London in the last few days, walk around your high street, see most shops still open, lots of people around. People are not quite taking this as seriously as the government intended to. So I would expect the forced closure of most shops and businesses that are not deemed to be essential for the immediate effort of tackling this crisis. And I would expect that's going to happen in the next day or so. Almost all businesses will be shut down. How tight the restrictions are about essentially having to stay in your own home, I'm not sure about, but I think they'll be reasonably tight. I think people will probably still be allowed to go out for a walk or that kind of thing, get essential supplies, make essential journeys. The government, I believe, has rode back from the idea that it's going to lock down London in the sense of stopping people going out of it and moving into it, which I think is curious because that's one of the experiences we saw in Italy where they locked down Lombardy, people moved out of it, and that was one of the reasons why the disease spread. So I think, as with all the other things, the government has let the top line plan get ahead of the detail. And this is where I think the comms has been a problem, because you need to have most of these foreseeable questions answered in your own heads 
before you announce the policy. I think it's dribbled out a little earlier than they wanted it to. Yes, George, again, going back to the comms issues with the government and dealing with the crisis, there were reports around on Thursday and Wednesday saying that London was going to go into lockdown, but no definition of what lockdown means. And the government has now sort of rolled back on some of the more extreme things, the idea that only one person will be allowed to leave a house at a certain time, the idea that there'd be military enforcement of this stuff. So as Robert was very much saying, it just feels like the PM in his press conference said, you know, we're a country of freedom and liberty, but we will do absolutely whatever it takes to defeat this disease. So he let it open and allow a lot of these reports and rumours to go around before then pushing back on it quite hard on Thursday morning. It was very confusing. Well, yes, I was at the heart of this writing stories about a potential lockdown in London. And the start of this was Nicola Sturgeon, who's briefed at COBRA meetings, saying that London was about to face much more stringent measures. There were officials telling us that there were plans for a lockdown on Friday. The Prime Minister was asked about it at his press conference and didn't deny that a lockdown was in prospect and indeed went back to that question at the end of the press conference to say, as you said, that very difficult, tough decisions lay ahead. So a lot of journalists, including me, reported that this lockdown was under preparation. And as you say, on the Thursday, there was a very strong pushback saying that wasn't what was intended at all and accusing people of irresponsible journalism and all the rest of it. And I think the language they would prefer to use is the language of shutdowns, as Robert was just alluding to there, rather than a lockdown, which suggests complete bans on movement in and around the capital and indeed out of the capital. So I think Robert said it's going to be more about commercial premises rather than an overall travel ban or keeping people locked in their houses. But it's easy to criticise the politicians or indeed, in this case, (laughs) criticise the journalists. But things are moving very fast. The communications are very difficult because the whole situation is evolving in an emotionally fraught sort of way as well. So people are getting quite stretched at the moment, I think. And we will find out, and probably by the time people listen to this podcast, we'll find out a bit more about what Boris Johnson exactly has in mind for London. Because one thing that I thought is interesting, Robert, is what British people will and will not accept on this, because there is a delicate balance here between you know some of the more aggressive measures, things we've seen in Paris, where you have to sign a form and there's one of five reasons you are actively leaving your flat and there's very aggressive fines if you're out and about walking on the street and that kind of thing. So you've got that on one end of it, but on the other end of it as well, obviously, clearly, as you were saying earlier, London isn't listening to a lot of this, and so there are going to need to be some tougher restrictions. And the government has to judge that quite carefully, because if you push people too far, you then get into the very difficult potential arena of civil disobedience. It depends what you mean by civil disobedience. I mean, you're right, obviously, and Boris Johnson alluded to this in his press conference on, what was it, Wednesday, we talked about this being a land of liberties and not lightly surrendering them. On the other hand, I think people primarily now are focused on controlling this disease, not seeing the NHS overwhelmed and trying to limit the amount of time we are all in deep freeze economically. So I think actually the public will accept a reasonable amount as long as this is clear as long as it is well explained. And I fear, although I don't know if we'll go to the French level of forms to fill in or just have to explain yourself if you're stopped, but I do think that the country will expect places that are told to shut down to shut down. You know, And if he says, right, we're shutting down London and we're still seeing film footage and news reports and photographs in three days hence, which shows London still hasn't shut down, then that's going to happen. So people will be given the freedom to do the right thing. But at some point, you have to just make them. I think there'll be questions for Boris Johnson as well about if he doesn't go down the same route as 
Paris or New York or Brussels. Why hasn't he? And I think it's very clearly a desire at the top of government to keep London open. London is a big global financial centre. These decisions are being taken against a backdrop of market meltdowns and a lot of uncertainty about the British economy. And the idea of London being shut down at this time obviously is problematic, but equally... If the measures are seen to be too lax, people will be asking, why was that the case? And we're also seeing in some of the responses if what's happening to sterling. It's become a bit of an outline. There are lots of reasons, of course, for these things. But one would be if people are looking at Britain thinking it's not got quite as good a grip on this. So actually, there's an economic price to pay for not acting decisively as well. And Sarah, what's the NHS, the medical view of this as well, that if we do go into shutdown, as George said, how long is that like to last for to try and suppress the disease for as long as possible? Because you obviously do get to a point where socially it's not sustainable, but also in a health wise, it does still spread and there's no point in keeping the shutdown going. Simon Stevens was very clear that if the current raft of measures didn't work, further measures would have to be introduced. He was also talking about, you know, so much of this rests on whether the British public actually heeds the instructions. So I think he was leaving the way open to say the NHS can only handle this with much more draconian measures. I mean, I think there's one conceivable bright spot scientifically in all of this is that we do now seem to be quite close to a blood test which will show whether somebody has had the disease by means of showing whether they've created the necessary antibodies to fight it. And the reason that could be very good news for the NHS is that if somebody has had the disease, they won't get it again. That seems to be the broad scientific consensus. And they would then be able to go back into the front line with some sense of impunity. And finally, George and Robert, I just wanted to take a quick political lens. As we said, you've got to give politicians some leeway in this situation because these are very testing circumstances. As many MPs have said, nobody's seen anything like this in modern recent history here. But where do you both feel the government is doing on this and how is Boris Johnson performing? Because his natural mode of operating is being the jovial jester sort of figure who brings people together through jokes. That doesn't work in this situation. And generally, his performance has had, I think, mixed reviews, might be fair to put it, whereas others, say Rishi Sunak, the Chancellor, seems to have had generally very good reviews. What do you reckon, George? Well, I mean, there were plenty of comments along those lines that when Boris Johnson and Rishi Sunak had the joint press conference, that Rishi Sunak seemed to be the one with the more facts at his disposal of the calm, reassuring figure. There were legitimate criticisms to be made of Boris Johnson, the way he handled it. I mean, it's remarkable when you think back to it that it was only on March the 2nd that Boris Johnson chaired his first emergency COBRA meeting less than three weeks ago to tackle this crisis. Why, for example, didn't they identify ventilators as the weak link in the NHS much earlier and all the rest of it? But this would be a challenge of any prime minister. He's certainly got the ability, Boris Johnson, to mobilise the rhetoric to try to convey a sense of national purpose. That's one of his bright spots. People say he doesn't necessarily have total grip on all the detail when he chairs some of those meetings, but he's got experts around him who do have that expertise. So mixed reviews is probably uh, the best way of putting it at the moment. And Robert? I broadly agree with George. I think we're still at the very early stages and I think he will be judged by where we are at the end unless things go so terribly wrong that it's clear before then. I think that one can over-rely on the rhetoric, and I think he probably has. I think the country wants to see a government completely on top of this, on top of the organisation, and being direct with it when there are problems that they still have to resolve. We would like to see more coordination within government, more obvious signs 
of organisation. It's very early days, but the country doesn't want him to fail. It wants him to get this right. And I think, as George says, they will give him some leeway. But I don't think we want to be discussing how the government is performing in another two or three weeks. We want to have moved on from that by then. And Sarah, finally, how do you feel the Prime Minister has performed? I think you could argue that he's shown a kind of imagination in dealing with this threat that perhaps his predecessor, Theresa May, wouldn't have shown, having his chancellor junk an entire budget at just day's notice and turning it into a coronavirus budget, the call to arms for manufacturers to join this great national effort. I mean, if one does a counterfactual and imagines how Theresa May would be dealing with this, I think there are some ways in which one could argue that Boris Johnson has brought something to dealing with this crisis that perhaps the nation needed. And that's it for this week's episode of FT Politics. Thank you very much for George joining me in the studio and Robert and Sarah down the line. In the meantime, if you've liked what you've heard and would like to see some more FT journalism on coronavirus, then do check out our latest subscription offers, which you can find at ft.com forward slash offer. FT Politics was presented by me, Sebastian Payne, and produced by Anna Dedda. We'll be back next week. Until next time, stay well and thanks for listening. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince? They exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.